Hmm. Is ichor worth as much as blood? Can you write off a cursed goblet? Does an eight like a dog count as a child if you feed it breast milk? Hmm. That's right. It's tax season once again. But this spring, every donation to the Wrong Station Patreon qualifies you for a $7,000 tax credit, redeemable once Wrong Station takes over your country's government. Which is soon. Click the link in the description below to discover behind-the-scenes content, bonus episodes, art, book clubs, and more Wrong Station goodies. And remember to file. Ha <laughs> ha. Is there anything better than being stabbed? Yes, being stabbed repeatedly. Or at least that's what the slasher genre would have us believe. To get to the bottom of this and other deeply complex questions, Jacob and Alexander have sat down with New York Times best-selling horror author Stephen Graham Jones, the foremost acolyte of the slasher working today. They got into a lively and deadly conversation filled with thrills, chills, and horrifying revelations about Alexander's ancestors. Once again, these interviews would not be possible without the support of our patrons on Patreon, so if you enjoy our work, please consider signing up. You'll get access to an ad-free RSS, bonus stories, a behind-the-scenes discussion for every episode, and more. But, for now, Stephen Graham Jones. Hello, I'm Jacob Duarte Spiel. I'm Alexander Saxton. And we have a special interview today. Here with us is a true maverick of fear. He's been carving out new territory for 30 years across dozens of books and hundreds of stories. He puts the gore in allegory. He puts the stab in established horror genius. The master splatter, the Don Corleone of uh, rusty machetes. It's Stephen Graham Jones. Oh man, thank you for having me. What an intro. Thank you. I told you it sounded like I was introducing a wrestler. That's great, man. That's great. <laughs> thank uh, you for being here. Thank oh, you. Oh yeah, I'm honored. I'm honored to talk with y'all. Oh, thanks. Uh I wanted to start you with two tough questions before we go any further, because I think that yeah. these questions are going to both tell our audience everything that they need to know about you and uh also tell us everything that we'll need to know about you. They might be impossible questions, but mm-hmm. I want to see what you can do. So, one, if you had to be killed in a slasher, how would you want to go out? And two, if you were the killer in a slasher, what would be your method of slashing? You know, if I had to die in a slasher, or really if I were in a slasher, then I think I would die. So that's that's really the question. If I were in a slasher, how would I die? Um, and I'm fairly confident I would be um, one of the couple in the car at lover's lane in the first five minutes who gets menaced and stalked and <laughs> hung from above the car and i think that's great man because you're the blood sacrifice that lubricates the rest of the narrative and also you get to make out you know so there's no, yeah. there's no loss you know <laughs> you're not you're not hearing a mysterious noise and going out checking in the woods you're not you're not that guy you're yeah. you're oblivious an yeah, honorable exactly. death. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have to, I don't get terrorized. Like I always think that terrorization in slashers is really tenderizing the meat, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't get tenderized really. I'll just make out and get slashed and that's a good time, you know? <laughs> oh, and, and what would my, if I were the killer in a slasher, what would my chosen method of slashing be? You know, I think y'all probably have seen High Tension that, what is it, a French movie, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. French. That, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, um, 
that that woman in that wields that big cutoff saw which is like a it looks like about a 150 pound saw you know and um it is wicked when it catches you but i think this is very important for the balance you need in a slasher it's so unwieldy that it slows the killer down you know so it, <laughs> it, it evens the odds a little bit and it makes it it makes things draw out longer because yes if you ever get bitten by this saw it's all over for you forever <laughs> but um as long as you can like keep it a steady jog, you can probably avoid the saw, you know? So if, if you're a slasher, you're trying to create opportunities for people to keep, yeah. it, keep it dynamic on screen. It's got to be fair. Yeah, it's got to be yeah. fair. I mean, it's like it's like when you read a Superman comic and like it, they always have to make it fair for the bad guys, the villains, by somehow, you know, exposing Superman to Red Sun or all the things they do to make him weaker, to make it uneven, you know? And it's a better mm -hmm. story when Superman doesn't just walk in and instantly own everything, you know? Yeah. That's true. There's not many two-page Superman comics, but there could be a lot of them if if they wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now that we've got the hard questions out of the way, mm -hmm. for our listeners who might not have read your work or maybe have mm -hmm. read only a little bit, you know, how would you describe your writing style and the sort of things that you write about? I think we just gave people a big hint with those last two questions, but yeah, uh, yeah. Well, number one, I mean, I do a lot of horror and my stuff. I, I try not to shy away from from the gore, the blood, the terror, but also. To me, those moments of, you know, blood on the wall, spatter in the eyes, all that stuff, that's really just set up for the tender moments. The tender moments are my favorite moments to to write. Um, like an example would be in my novel from 2012, I think, The Last Final Girl. It's over mm -hmm. the top. There's a guy in a um, Michael Jackson mask who is called Billie Jean running around killing people, you know? <laughs> And it's just like there's just heads flying everywhere. It's over the top. And there's a horse's head that gets cut off even. You know? <laughs> but um so it's it's over the top. But my favorite moment of that novel is at a high school homecoming, this this unlikely girl has been kind of lured into the homecoming court and her father is supposed to walk her out at halftime of the big game. And her and her father have like a not a great relationship and he he's a hard drinker. And so she's on that ramp ready to go out and have her moment in the sun basically and her then her father is not there and he's not there and he's not there and it looks like this is going to be an emotional downbeat and then her little brother who they've been sniping at each other the whole story he shows up in a suit he's like 12 years old and she's 17 he show, he shows up on that ramp in a suit that's too big for him because he knew his dad <laughs> wouldn't need to make it and those are the moments i write for you know oh, that's so nice why, so why do you why do you shroud them in uh in in the blood and the saws then because I think the contrast or the 180 degree turn to the almost sentimental or tender moments, I think that those moments hit harder when they're when you have to wade through knee deep blood to get there. You mm -hmm. know, if you see if I if I'm here in Colorado on the trail and I see um, a whole field of um, flowers, you know, Columbine flowers, then I'm like, yeah, that's pretty. If I am up on the um, tundra at the Arctic Circle and I look out, look out it's bleak whiteness everywhere, but there's one flower growing out there. And that flower means so much more than a field of flowers, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's really interesting that you've, that you have zeroed in on, on the tenderness of your work as mm -hmm. sort of the, the, the crux of it, because you, when I've been reading your work, what I've really focused on is, is how, how funny it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've, I've really narrowed in on, on the comedy, uh, you know, the, the relationship between comedy and horror for Jacob and I is sort of like an old, an old yeah. uh, an old saw for us because we we both started out as comedy writers and then became horror oh. writers uh and I, i'd be really interested to hear what your take is on the relationship between those two genres yeah they're intimately they're, to me 
especially the slasher is like, and mm -hmm. I think this is in my heart is a chainsaw. Jade kind of says it. Um, it's a coin that's flipping through the air. And on one side, it's like the theater mask on one side, it's tragedy, terribleness on the other side is laughter, you know, and that, mm -hmm. that's how the slasher works. It goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that, um, it, in a broader sense, the way horror, the way comedy works in horror for me or humor, uh, there probably is a subtle difference that I'm not aware of between comedy and humor, but, um, mm -hmm it works as a pressure release valve because horror wants to go climb the 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 steep slope up to a plateau of screechiness mm -hmm. and it does that really quickly good horror does that really quickly but if it stays on that plateau then we the reader become kind of um not interested in it anymore because it's monotonous mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. a screech for the rest of the narrative what comedy does it allows it to be a spiky forward motion it, it resets and then you climb again and it resets and you climb again and i'm I mean, the cat in the closet, like you see it in Alien, yeah. um, Jonesy, you know, that, that resets us. It resets our tension. And it also keeps us kind of wrong footed that um, we don't know if that's going to be the xenomorph in the closet or if it's going to be Jonesy mm -hmm. again, you know. Um, and also, y'all probably picked up on this. Um, lately, we've had people with comedy backgrounds doing really good horror, you know. Oh, yeah. And I think the reason, yeah, I think the reason for that is that... Um, the tension is the same in comedy and horror. It's tension, tension, release, tension, tension, release. Set know? a punchline. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, and sometimes the punchline is a shish kebab through the mouth, like happy birthday to me, you know? Right? <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny you uh, mentioned that. My grandfather wrote that. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. I, I love happy birthday to me. Uh, yeah, yeah, the like kid with the two little white rats that my dad yeah. had like two little white rats as a as a kid. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that is the coolest. Mm -hmm. That's the coolest. I love I'm, that. So... I'm, this is, I've never, ever heard anyone mention that film. And then I was reading like, My Heart is a Chainsaw. There's like a reference to happy birthday to me like every 10 <laughs> pages. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. My dad's going to be so happy. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. You know what? And talking to random slasher associations the chair of my department you know i'm a, I'm a professor at cu boulder yeah. he was in the original sleepaway camp back in okay like, oh shit really <laughs> yeah i know oh i watched that really <laughs> recently uh before yeah. i knew that we were uh it's that's actually mm -hmm. one of my one of my girlfriend's favorite movies so mm -hmm. we we had a blast watching it yeah i uh also alexander do you want to do you want to out your grandfather for writing a different movie as well oh, <laughs> have you ever have you ever heard of ilsa she wolf of the ss Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. he wrote that too. Wow. Yeah, he's got a whole, a whole, a whole catalog wow. of movies. Yeah. Oh wow, that's wonderful. That's and so and, cool. and if you're wondering if I like grew up in a mansion with all of that uh, happy birthday <laughs> to me money, the answer is no. <laughs> what cracks me up about happy birthday to me, which I love it, is uh, that top the top ten. You know those students um, mm -hmm. that um, they're like this is used to be, this used to be a staple of the slasher before probably before Scream 4, it was, I mean, that, which is a long time. Um, the kids playing these high schoolers were always like 30 years old, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that made it like, I think, I mean, number one, you can, I don't know. I don't know why, I don't know why they got cast actually, but the mm -hmm. result is that um, when they die, I feel less sad because I'm like, yeah, they probably did something bad. They're 30 years old. If they're 17 and dying, I'm, I'm like, but they still had so much potential, you know, and which is why for me, Scream 4 was, it was good, but it was a different kind of horror because mm -hmm. these kids looked like they were 17, you know, mm -hmm. and I felt I was feeling bad for them dying. In the original Scream, I, I kind of feel that way about um about 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 Campbell. And it's just like watching her, yeah. her run around and it's kind of like. Ooh, like if she yeah. really looks the part, it's yeah, it's, she does. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned Neve Campbell. Y'all can see this. You 
people on the podcast can't see it. It's a signed by Nev Campbell. Somebody just gave oh, it to cool. me yesterday. Yeah. That's so nice. <laughs> it's also because of your background sort of phasing in and out of reality. Oh, and then yeah. oh. Oh, Alexander, man. you got to send him a shish kebab signed by yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. That would be D- great. Dig up my granddad, use his hand to yeah. sign the shish kebab. <laughs> and send it to Colorado. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I think you're right about this, like uh, the relationship between comedy and horror being this mm-hmm. like spiky sort of thing. And and what you were mentioning about Jonesy, I was thinking the exact same thing about, you know, mm-hmm. when the killer turns out to be a cat in, in the closet or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's that is itself a joke. Like that mm-hmm. is a, a, a joke. And it's all about, you know, uh, it, when you're saying like tension, release, tension, release, to me, it's like expectation and then subversion, expectation yeah. and subversion. And the yeah. difference between comedy and horror is that it's whether that subversion is going to be a a scare or a joke, really. Like, exactly. is it going to be a punchline or is it going to be someone dead? Exactly. You know, I, I, I was in like a doctor's office years ago and I was just reading some random doctor magazine. What's that? I don't call it doctor magazines. They just call it magazines, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, the, the little thing I read, I don't think I read all of it, was that until the moment of eruption, physiologically, if they put a scan on somebody, I'm not probably not x-ray, that's not very healthy, but some sort of scan where they can track what's happening in your body. Mm-hmm. Until the moment of eruption, a scream and a laugh are indistinguishable. You don't know what's gonna you don't know what it's gonna be until it actually happens. You know, and I mm-hmm. think the slasher really capitalizes on that really, really Definitely. well. Um you know, I'm talking about Jonesy. Um I think Stephen I, I've always suspected that Stephen King was aware of the cat in the closet thing really intimately such that in pet cemetery he thought well what if the cat was the killer you know <laughs> what if <laughs> church was really evil <laughs> that's a very good point yeah <laughs> so with this like zigzag thing that we're talking yeah. about when you're writing is that is that something that you're using as as like a structuring mechanism or is it just something that emerges out of the process of writing for you i think the second i think it emerges okay. kind of naturally i think if i were to try to um strategize it then I would mess it all up. I would telegraph my intentions and, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't get out of it in a clean way. So I think what happens is I realize I'm getting kind of bored. I need a laugh or a blood blood gag or something, you know? Mm-hmm. You mentioned in, in one of your interviews that I was reading that you don't outline, which no. uh, is very, um, I mean, I'm, I'm very jealous basically, but <laughs> like I, cause I gotta, I need to, um, mm-hmm. but it reminds me, you're mentioning Stephen King earlier and I know you're a big fan of his work, of mm-hmm. course. Um, who isn't, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, he also talks about not outlining mm-hmm. and just sort of starts writing or he has a concept, starts writing and just lets yeah. it flow. And then he ends up, you know, three weeks later with a 500 page book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's very surprising to me that you're able to to do that, but you're also very prolific. So it's clearly working for you. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it, it's a lot of work to write like that because um, I really think that people who world build or outline and people who don't do that get to the same place. Mm-hmm. It's just it's different routes to get there. You mm-hmm. know, like if if I think of the um, the story terrain as an island, you know, like a somebody who outlines or world builds or both, they before they ever set pen to paper for that first sentence, they know the socioeconomic history of this place. They know the climate. They know where everything is. They have a map of it in their head and probably written out somewhere. Um, me, I just parachute down into a big blank space and I have to walk around to find the shore and I have to um, walk around to find the dead ends and I've, in the caves, the mountains, all that. At the end of 
the project, I've walked across the whole island and it's all like Technicolor come alive behind me as mm. I step into it, you know? And and so we've gotten to the same place, the, the people who plan and the people who don't. It's just, um, I think it's, I, to me, it feels like more work to do it the way I do it. It feels less efficient because yeah, I do it, go... Yeah, I do go down a whole lot of dead ends, you know. Yeah, I was gonna say, does that does that process of exploring the island look like doing ten drafts of something before you find yeah. the, the right? It kind of does, it? yeah, yeah, it, it does, and it it involves erasing the last fifteen thousand words, which kind of hurts. Mm -hmm. But I really feel like those fifteen thousand words that I have to delete, they function as kind of like a strange attractor. They still exert a gravitational influence on the narrative, even though they're invisible and absent, mm -hmm. you know. Well, I make I, like, I make the point to people that they're like uh like whatever whatever pre work you do, whether it's outline or writing a draft mm. and deleting fifteen thousand words, it's mm. it's like the cranes that build skyscrapers. They're not there when the skyscraper's done, but they built it. Like they're yeah. part of it. Yeah, for sure. I totally I like agree. to think of it as like um like like an oil painting, how you paint over everything again and again and again. Yeah. It's the it's the, yeah. the the ten layers of depth that gives you uh, it does the finished yeah. feel. And, you know, talking about drafting, um, I've always felt that um, you write your first draft with your heart and then you, in revision, that's when you use your brain. You know, mm -hmm. like thinking to me is totally um, not helpful for writing because mm -hmm. all it does is make me second guess my decisions and feel the weight of all these other eyes looking at it. And that's not helpful. Like what I try to do is just in the first draft, I, I tell myself I'm writing for um, – my 16 year old cousin who is stoned 24 hours a day and he's going to like, he's going to giggle at everything I say, you know? <laughs> so it's all golden and I can just burn through and get something down on the page. And then when I come back to revise it, I can say that, you know, G through M is kind of stupid. You know, I can probably, mm -hmm. I can probably get from F to N a lot more efficiently than that. And, and it, revision is really, I mean, it's taxing, but it's super rewarding because it's nice to see the threads come together in ways mm -hmm. that I didn't actually plan, you know? Mm -hmm. Now the real so, question is: Does that sixteen-year-old cousin's parents know that he's high twenty-four hours a day, or did you just out him <laughs> through our podcast? Yeah, man, he, he may be seventeen now. I don't know. <laughs> also, is it your sixteen-year-old cousin who's high all the time, or is it you when you were sixteen years old? All the time? Uh, you know, I've known a lot of writers who do um, do various substances to like write, and they sometimes get some really good stuff down. But I've also seen them; they kind of flame out after two books, maybe three books, you know, because mm -hmm. I think relying on stuff to write other than caffeine and anger, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. that, um, I think, I think that burns you up in a way. With the, like, you know, the Stephen King driving in the fog approach. Mm -hmm. I mean, Stephen King, Lord love him. He has some books that just sort of, mm -hmm. you know, don't, they don't arrive at their destination mm -hmm. w mm -hmm. with that sort of instinctive approach. How do you, how do you, end up with something that that feels tight and focused is that just the the horrible effort of like revision and revision and revision it is revision and it's also being willing to scrap the whole project if it mm -hmm. like i've got a lot of books in the drawer that um were fun premises and petered out or were terrible novels and have a really strong ending you know but mm -hmm. they don't have the complete package and so mm -hmm. i realized that i can spend my tires on this book for eight more months and maybe I can make it halfway acceptable, but during those eight months, I could also write two other novels that have a chance to be good. You know, well, you talk about with uh, mm. "My Heart Is a Chainsaw" going through that process uh, mm. over the course of like ten years. It sounds, mm. uh, or is it ten, eight, something uh, like it, that? Let's see, twenty thirteen. I think it was eight years. Yeah. Eight years. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and just starting it, putting it away, 
because it yeah. didn't work and then like completely changing the main character starting uh-huh. it again putting it away uh-huh. and then figuring uh-huh. it out finally and you end up uh-huh. with with a with a great novel that i i really Thank enjoyed you. i can't wait to read the uh-huh. second one uh-huh. um and yeah like that's somehow just like sometimes that's just the process so like you you put something in a, in a drawer now maybe it comes uh-huh. out four years from now and it's great exactly yeah no, no, that's exactly that's exactly what I think too. Like, yeah, with Chainsaw, it was a, that's the longest I've ever spent on a novel. Most novels that yeah. I've put away, I never get them out again. Mm-hmm. But um, like that, I was talking about a terrible novel with a good ending. I have this novel called The Hedonist Chronicles, <laughs> which I probably wrote in about 2001, 2002. And it has the best ending of anything I've done. And I've tried to graft that ending onto various other books and it doesn't work. It only works with that broken novel, which makes me mm-hmm. so sad. I wish, I wish mm-hmm. I could use it somewhere else, you know? Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're having, you know, re- reading your work, it really feels like when you're when you're watching a movie where there's like a character actor who's too good for the movie that they're in mm. and is just chewing scenery and having the time of their life. And there's something about about reading your 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 work that feels like that. There's just like oh, this man. real sense of fun underneath it. And it really mm-hmm. feels like you're enjoy you're having the time of your life when you're writing mm-hmm. it. Like, can you talk about the role of, of joy in, in the yeah. writing process? Because so, so um, many of us so often feel it as this you know this struggle this work yeah yeah um yeah if like if writing was not fun to me i wouldn't do it you know Mm. i I just want to do fun things which is it sounds like a kindergartner i know (laughs) you know i just want to i just want to eat ice cream i don't want to do math you know but Mm -hmm. um but i'm up to me it's always a mystery i hear other writers like talking about the terror of the blank page or how to get across 350 pages and just how much work it is and how they love to be done, but they don't love to actually be doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I've never understood that to me sitting here at the keyboard and um, diving head first and heart first into another world where the stakes are high and everything is almost melodramatic. It's all screechy and fun. That is, I call that playing with dragons, you know, mm-hmm. and I would much rather play with dragons than mow the lawn. Like, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I write to hide from responsibility and to hide from the senselessness and violence of the real world, you know, mm-hmm. which is probably, mm-hmm. I should like, maybe I should um, focus my efforts to try to make the world a better place in some fashion, but um, I'm a wimp, so I just write, you know, but um, I remember years ago, somebody asked Louise Erdrich, they said, so writing is really hard. I, isn't it that which is not that you know great of a question mm-hmm. and her answer was um well it's sure not it's sure not digging sugar beets you know because yeah, I've, I've had a lot of i've had a lot of agricultural manual labor jobs i used to be one of those guys like um like machete who stands down at the corner downtown with a shovel and waits for a truck to pull up and you get in and you don't know mm-hmm. what you're getting paid you know where you're going but you're getting a few bucks somehow um i've done a lot of that of that kind of day work and that's actually work, but mm-hmm. sitting here and playing with dragons, that's just fun. I race mm-hmm. to it. You know, it's, it's not, it's not, it never feels like a chore. I guess that's what I'm saying to me. Writing is never a chore. Sometimes it's a slog because I'm in a story quandary or I've got notes that I'm having a hard time incorporating. I mean, that, that can feel like work and that's not always mm-hmm. the most pleasant, but, but that's not writing. Focus. That's revising. Yeah. That's revising. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what I do in the, in those, um, slugs, those revision slugs is remind myself that, um, this is going to be rewarding in the end. It's going to get a, get to a product that's better than it was, you know? I think people can feel, I, I think for me personally, like going through mm. writer's block in my, in my earlier twenties and sort of mm. getting through that. I think one of the things that happens is, you know, that what you're writing isn't that good. And mm. so you convince yourself that writing is really hard 
mm-hmm. but in reality you just aren't good enough at it yet uh mm-hmm. and and the truth is just like like anything else it's just practice like mm-hmm. no one would say that practicing the piano is hard what they say is like playing the piano well is hard and it's like yeah, yeah just you just yeah. need to sit there and just like put your reps in like get like just mm-hmm. right from start to finish and what i've been finding recently not to you know make this about my personal process mm-hmm. but like i'm working on screenplays and scripts right now mm-hmm. and and i started with like the shortest format that i had to write which was about under 20 pages and and then i just slowly just wrote longer and longer scripts and by the time i got to the 60 page one i was like this is great this feels this is like this is easy this is like mm-hmm. fun now cuz mm-hmm. i did it cuz i did my reps cuz i i did yeah. the work and yeah. I think that that's the thing that people maybe people try and jump into writing a novel straight a, straight like first thing, and it's yeah. like that's it's just too much. Like it's not it's yeah. not easy because it's it's a lot. It can it can be overwhelming and daunting for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I always I always think of um, like um, people talk about writer's block, and number one, I always think that like I said earlier, like writer's block is really just too high of standards. Like kind of like what you're saying, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but two, like. You can ask. You can ask the the waiters get waiter blocked. The plumbers get plumbers <laughs> yeah. blocked. And you know, what? yeah, they do. They wake up at seven in the morning. They're like, I do not want to go to work, but they go to work anyways. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's what writers have to do. If if they don't know what comes next, or if it's a, something they don't want to face on the page, you don't get to like going on social media and casting about like a tragic romantic figure is not going to help you do it. You know, yeah. it's it's going to maybe get other people to commiserate with you. But I don't think that's terribly helpful either. You just got to sit there and pound through it, you know? I'm actually running, I'm I'm creating a workshop all about writer's block right now. Nice. nice. Uh, and I agree with what you're saying, where like a lot of it is just like mm. having high standards. But I think the other thing that happens is mm. people don't actually know what writing is. Mm. Like they don't understand what the process is or like how it's done or how you yeah. you are to be led through the process by like like a lot a, a big thing about what I, what I'm writing about in it is actually what you're saying, which is that it's about mm. finding yourself in it and being happy and like mm-hmm. and like enjoying mm-hmm. the process because that's how you're gonna mm-hmm. write something that other people will like too. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. And you know Neil Gaiman says the like clickover point for him in realizing how to do good writing was he he realized he can't um. He can't protect himself on the page. He has to be vulnerable on the page. Mm-hmm. He has to and be honest and truthful. You can't just like go in there and think I'm, I'm gonna make everybody think I'm like. It's like when you're 14 and you put all your favorite band posters on the wall and wait for somebody to walk in and see the inside of your head and think it's amazing. You know, you can't do that <laughs> on the page. That doesn't come across well. You've got to be you've got to be willing to expose your heart and let people step on it. Yeah, you got to write about something. Yeah. And if you're writing yeah. about something, it's about something that's in you, whatever that is. Yeah. And for and sure, you got to put yeah. it out there. Like with, with horror, I, what I tell people is the only way to do good horror is write about your own personal terrors. If you if you like think drowning is scary or spiders are scary, you can't just write a spider novel or a drowning novel because it's like generic. It's not particular to you. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that mm-hmm. is your terror. Maybe you're afraid of water spiders. I don't know. And um, but um, yeah, it's like me. One of my one of my big terrors that I have a lot of nightmares about is I fall down a set of stairs and I get down there and I'm not knocked out, but I have hurt myself and I look at my arm and it's split open and inside instead of blood and bone, it's just like white tofu, you know, and that just so terrifies me. I've, I've written a novel on it, The Babysitter Lives, and I've done some stories on it and just trying to exorcise that fear. But, yeah. you know, I used to I used to I really like what Stephen King says. Somebody asked him once, um, 
you've got all these scary stories in your head. How do you sleep? And he said, I sleep fine. I give my nightmares away. And I really <laughs> like the like the like poeticness of that, I guess. But um, yeah. but at the same time, I, it doesn't work for me because when I put my nightmares on the page, they just have higher resolution and I see them around <laughs> the corner. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think now, like, have I ever written anything that's that's like come back and haunted me like extra hard because I wrote it? I did write mm-hmm. a I, I am scared of heights and I did uh, write something about the fear of heights, but like tied it uh, into some other things that I'm also scared of. Yeah. yeah. But now I'm also living on the 28th floor of a building. So oh, <laughs> I, can, wow. I can see out the window. I'm just like, like right now wow. looking out the window. I'm just like, I don't wow. like it out there. Wow. <laughs> this balcony, this balcony is getting zero use. Let me put it that wow. way. <laughs> yeah. Have, I mean, do you remember that old Gary Larson cartoon about that doctor's, um, Oh, there's some drilling going on. Sorry about that. This doctor's revolutionary new therapy practice of dealing with all of the snakes, dark, and (laughs) fear of snakes, dark, the dark, and heights. And it's like a dude in a steel chamber, like hanging over. Yeah, and it's clearly not helping him. Very funny you bring up Gary Larson because, like, I I like memorized Gary Larson as a kid. Like, I know you're like, do you know this Gary Larson? I'm like, yeah, I know it. Yeah, (laughs) don't worry, I got it. He's got a tattooed on the back of his head yeah. like the girl in Rush Hour 3. Yeah. I close my eyes. It's all Gary Larson cartoons. I heard uh, I heard that he's got a new book coming out. Is that right? Oh. He's been he's been if you go on his website, he's got some new comics up. Um, nice. Yeah. Nice. I don't I don't know if he's got a new book, but definitely okay. new comics up there. He's a yeah, just and, and they're still just as good as he was before. It's like the man. That's amazing. Yeah, That's it's amazing. like Jordan coming out of his first retirement. He's just like just wow. as good as he was. Nice, nice. Going back for a second to to what you were talking about, like you know, uh, picking sugar beets and and doing that kind mm-hmm. of agricultural work, like mm-hmm. that. That's that's really the the world of 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 your stories for me. Is this mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, it's this like world of rural poverty. And now that you're like mm-hmm. a university professor, there's there's this big change in class status there. How do you mm-hmm. when 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 your life changes like that? How do you hold on to what made your work uh, real and vital and um, how, how do you not let it change you? I, I mean, I, I keep answering with Stephen King answers. I should, I should have another writer that I've quote, you know, but, <laughs> but I'm, I, what I'm, what the thing I'm probably most impressed with with Stephen King across his career, across 60 plus books is that, um, ever since probably Salem's Lot of the Shining, he has been set for life, you know, mm-hmm. financially, but, um, he nevertheless has never forgotten, um, what it's like to work at a laundromat, live in a trailer, and not have mm-hmm. not know if you're going to make rent, and have to cut your telephone off, and that kind of stuff. Which is to say, he writes about those conditions authentically, not like a tourist. And mm-hmm. um, and I always hold that up as my model. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm set for life financially or anything, but I am probably doing better than the characters in my stories, generally mm-hmm. speaking. But um, I've never forgotten where I come from, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't think, I, I don't think it's possible for me to either. I, every once in a while, I'll try to write a story about somebody who's like in some privileged position and that's, it's kind of fun, but it often ends up being a send up instead of like, um, mm-hmm. Jonathan Franzen will do it in a way that feels, you feel their struggles. Or Brady Sinellis is really good at that. At least mm-hmm. these kids driving Mercedes and doing cocaine all the time. He, he writes about their internal struggles and how the world is not fitting up, matching up with their romantic ideals and all this stuff. Um, and he makes it feel super, super vital. And all that, all that 
I, as a reader, am being trotted through is, does she like me? Does she not like me? Mm -hmm. Am I going to pass this class? Am I not going to pass this class? But he's able to make it so real. And I think that's because that's the world he come from. He comes from, you know, and, mm -hmm. and me, like, um, I really think writers only ever can write about the emotional landscape of a single place. And it's usually the place they grew up. I grew up mm -hmm. in dirt poor West Texas, oil country, cotton country, cattle country, like the, the local high school, um, the big dance every year is called Katoika for cattle, oil, and cotton, you know? Um, um, like I can write a story set on Mars in 2789 and you peel up that, that dusty red planet, the surface, and it's going to be West Texas in yeah. 1985. You know, I just, I can't help that. And, and because of that, I mean, I, I guess my big hope for myself is that I don't forget where I came from. You know, mm -hmm. I'll never go back, but I hope I never forget it either. I, I, you know, something that I, I wondered about, you've mentioned in interviews, or maybe it's just in your, mm. maybe it's a profile, but you've mm. said something about how you're the only, uh, like, uh, Blackfoot yeah. Uh, yeah. person in West Texas, maybe ever, uh, or you and your, you and your immediate family. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was doing some research because I, I was, I was just curious about, you know, where, you know, you're saying you're the only one. So where are they? And you're about as far away from those you can get, right? Montana, but then also yeah. across the border in Alberta and I think yeah. BC or Saskatchewan, one of the two. Okay. Uh, did you ever have like a, you know, a, a, as a kid, did you ever want to go, you know, visit? Maybe you had relatives there. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But was it ever mm -hmm. like a place that you would you would reach out to or go to? Like, was it sort of like, um, yeah. And what was your connection? Because I think like I'm Jewish and there's a thing that mm. people always talk about where this idea of like going to Israel and like I have a lot of problems with Israel, like a lot of problems. Mm. But mm. going there is always this thing that you're supposed to want to do. It's supposed to be like a mm. second home. And I really wonder mm. if uh, like what your experience was knowing, you know, that you had a bunch of people that were, you know, you were, quote unquote, yeah. connected to living across the country. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess I started going to the reservation in Montana probably when I was 11 or 12. That was my mm -hmm. first time. And I've been been going regularly ever since. But nice. it was quite eye-opening to me, like going from being the only Blackfeet at my school or the only Native at my school, period, um, mm -hmm. to going up to a place where every face looked like mine and where my cousins looked just like me. You know, mm -hmm. it was really, uh, it's really nice not to be weird, if that makes sense. Yes, you know? it does. <laughs> and it, it, like I was just up there two or three weeks ago and it was just so, it's just so comfortable, you know? Um, and yeah, I mean, lots of people talk about like an ancestral homeland, like what you're talking about with, with Israel. And um, I do think there is something to that. And my, my, my question with it always, is it something actually like that's in our muscle and fiber and souls and minds, or is it something socialized into us? I'm not, I'm not sure, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like that. if you're told from like really, really yeah. young age that there's this place, there's this place, there's this place. Yeah. And then you finally yeah. go, well, of course it's going to feel like home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. So that place for me was England it. and it sucked there. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the, but they hate it too. So. Yeah, maybe yeah. maybe so you were experiencing <laughs> the true feeling of a homecoming the real you know, the real thing you know i was sitting at a, i was sitting at a table in spain with a couple of people who are from london and i was supposed to go to london in a week or two or something and i, and I said i can't wait to go to london because i hear the food is bland and i love bland food i love like i don't i'm not a i don't really it's not that i don't care how food tastes i just don't want food to taste exciting or i just think i think food is just fuel you put in your body and you should mm -hmm. get it over with in five minutes and go do something else you know <laughs> And so I told them, I said, I can't wait to go to England because I hear the food is wonderfully bland. And they were quiet for a bit. And then then one of them said, that is the sickest burn I've ever heard on London. 
in my life. <laughs> Wonderfully bland. <laughs> his, I, his wife produces so much, so much, uh, so much writing. He's not busy eating like me. Yeah, he's not busy cooking like I am. Yeah, I fucking love food. Yeah, yeah I'm making yeah. food all the time. Oh man, <laughs> I just, I just, I just really, about... re you know, this past year I was in Virginia with who? Sarah Langan, Grady Hendrix, Paul Tremblay, maybe somebody else. Um. And for the first time in my life, when I was 51 years old, I tried a corn dog, and it was pretty good. I liked corn dog. I never knew how to like corn dogs, you know. Um, and that's the and beginning also, of the end of your writing career. That is totally. I agree. <laughs> um, also, in the past like 18 months, I've experimented with putting like a shake or two of pepper on my scrambled eggs. And oh my god! And it's it's a little crazy, and it's like hot in my mouth, and then my stomach is hot for like two hours later. So I'm not going to do it a lot, but I can do it if I have to. If I'm in a situation where I'm in a prison and they put pepper on my eggs, I think I can eat them. You know, I was about to suggest if you really, I want to like I don't want to blow your mind or anything, but there's this thing called furikake, which is a Japanese uh, like spice mix thing. Oh, it's wow. one of the best things to put on eggs, and I promise you, it's not wow. spicy. Oh, okay, furikake. <laughs> Yeah, wow. I'll, I'll email your publicist yes. the spelling. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Is ichor worth as much as blood? Can you write off a cursed goblet? Does an eight like a dog count as a child if you feed it breast milk? Hmm. That's right. It's tax season once again. But this spring, every donation to the Wrong Station Patreon qualifies you for a $7,000 tax credit, redeemable once Wrong Station takes over your country's government. Which is soon. Click the link in the description below to discover behind-the-scenes content, bonus episodes, art, book clubs, and more Wrong Station goodies. And remember to file. I, I actually wanted to, I, I wanted to, because this is, this is very interesting because like you're talking about how much you don't care about food, but something that mm -hmm. I notice in your writing, you have a very good, and you mentioned it just earlier, but like being in Colorado, walking out in the meadow, seeing a bunch of columbine flowers and you were like mm -hmm. specific, you said, didn't just say flower, you went back and you changed it to columbine flower. You, mm -hmm. you really reference flora and fauna of regions that you write about. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. a big part of the specificity of your work and this richness. I know you don't, um, I know that you don't outline, but do you research mm -hmm. this kind of stuff? And is that part of your process? Um, I don't research much at all. I, I far prefer to lie convincingly, you know, and it's really fun for me to um, like push things that feel true into the world and then people believe them, you know, <laughs> like in one of my books in Demon Theory, I remember I have a little footnote about how Phil, Phil Collins wrote that song in the air tonight about having watched Jason Voorhees drown in Friday the 13th, you know, and um, and and I slipped <laughs> it in like fact. And then I was having lunch with somebody a few years ago and they, they mentioned that. They said, I never knew Phil Collins was a, slash, a slasher fan. And I, I like had to lean forward and say, you know, I made that up. <laughs> <laughs> but no, research is not what I'm good at or nor interested in. However, this comic book I'm doing, Earth Divers, I've, because it's um, all centered around and structured by um, Christopher Columbus's first crossing of mm -hmm. the Atlantic. Um, I've had to do a lot of research on that, and that has been a completely different ride for me. It's been really productive too. It gave me a scaffolding to kind of follow. And the second arc is about the Declaration of Independence, right at the moment of signing in mm -hmm. you know July, early July, seventeen seventy six. And so I had to look up all the players and all the tensions and everything. And it's really weird for me to do research, and I think it's teaching me that I should keep things set. And about the 80s on because i know that stuff i don't have to look that <laughs> stuff up 
Well, yeah. but but you do have like a lot of awareness of of uh, you know I, I and Alexander and I were talking about this right before the call, but we were talking about how you know there's like the depth of detail to what you're writing, mm. and you say that you don't do research, but you mm. clearly know at least some of the things that you're talking about yeah. extremely intimately. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's stuff that you personally have experienced or maybe it's in mm. things that you've read, you know, mm. nothing is ever vague or referred to in vague terms. Like I'm thinking like mm. in The Night of the Mannequins, uh, which was I loved, you you mm. reference these like very specific mannequin based pranks mm. and you don't just do one, which I think is the thing that a lot of writers would do where they do one and then they say, and more pranks like that. You have like four mm. or five different ones and then you mm. allude to even more of them. Mm -hmm. And or in like my heart is a chainsaw, you've got these like sub stories that are like how to properly transport like a dead elk across a lake or like mm -hmm. how to drive a golf ball that's on fire. And, mm -hmm. and you know, what? how do you approach these things with such specificity? Uh, you know, it sounds to me like this is just stuff that makes you happy as a writer uh, beyond yeah. beyond that. But like, yeah, where where do these things kind of come from for you? You, no, you're right. They do make me happy as a writer when I read them or when I write them. But at the same two, I think like specificity and granular details, just the particular um, makes it makes it a, a single place instead of like a distillation of places, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it's a, like to me, horror, horror needs to be set in the real world, in our world in order to scare you because only the only mechanism it has to scare you is this might be in my closet. This might be down the street for me, you know, and mm -hmm. And so if I've got a world where there's centaurs and the moon, the moon whistles a tune every night, that's not our world. You know, I don't mm -hmm. think that's going to be scary. That can have some disturbing imagery in it, but it's not going to be scary to me anyways. So the way that I try to jack up the resolution, when I say jack up, I mean like turn up to 11. The resolution is doing the particularness the, um, of getting that elk across the water and like and talking about the granular details, like stuff in the nose with mud so that the air doesn't escape, you know, yeah. like the, the, those, those little mechanical things are always so fascinating to me. And, you know, I, if I had to identify the moment I got infected with that, I think it would be reading Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon in the, whenever uh, it came out, like, what was that, 96 or 98, something uh -huh. like that, mm -hmm. because he is, as far as I'm concerned, he's about the best at that. Well, he's the best at, at like those granular details, but mm -hmm. also at um staging this exposition or this info dump in a way that it's dramatic you know mm -hmm. that it matters like it's easy to come up with a wikipedia entry on this or that and drop into it and then transition out but that's kind of boring yeah. Neil stevenson has a way of doing it where it's fun and exciting and i'm really i don't i'm not as good as him yet but i'm always trying to be you know? what do you think the trick is for that um probably the first trick is having it be fascinating to the characters mm -hmm. I, would, I would think um because it's always got to be a fascination that comes from the book i like if it's like jacking up like dialing the microscope down tighter and tighter has got to be something that the characters are in a sense hungry for rather mm -hmm. than me showing off how deep a dive i can do you mm -hmm. know because the point at which a, a narrative or story whatever starts feeling like i am showing off that's the moment in which the story is indulging itself and I have mm -hmm. to back off, you know, like in the only good Indians near the end, there's a really key um, battle on the basketball court, a game of 21. And um, we come into the game at the 16th point and we go up to, to the 20th point. We don't, we don't go to 21, I don't think. And 
my impulse with that was to start at the very first dribble of the first point and take it all mm-hmm. the way to the end. But then I realized that that's just me looking at fun basketball moves. The reader is not going to tolerate that, you know? Yeah. And so it is sometimes a matter of um, anticipating what is going to look like indulgence, you know? And one, one place I always have to call, pull myself back is um, with cars or El Caminos or trucks, because I can talk <laughs> about those forever and ever and ever. Like, there was a long while in my output where I could identify why I wrote this novel, this novel, this novel. And it was always because of a 67 Ford truck or a 69 El Camino. And I, I just, I just case it in all these characters and world. Look, I really just want to talk about that El Camino. That's what I love. You know, <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. I think for me, like, and I think this is why I dialed in on it in your writing, but for me, mm-hmm. it's like, it's nature, it's flora, it's fauna. It's like knowing mm-hmm. the names of, of the things mm-hmm. around me, but like I yeah. could, yeah. Like I have to dial back when I'm, sometimes when I'm writing about something or sometimes yeah. avoid nature altogether because I know that I'll, I'll just be like, okay, now we're talking about like this specific species of jumping spider and mm-hmm. the fact that it eats other spiders. And like, that's yeah. what's interesting yeah. to me. And yeah. we're forgetting about the zombies or the, or the, yeah. whatever the half man, half beast thing that's sure. running around. For sure. You know, like, and I think the reason I do tend to be in nature more than in the city is just because that's where I grew up. I grew up out in yeah. the fields, up in the trees, out hunting and everything. That was my life for so, so long. I, I sometimes feel when I write about, like, New York City or Chicago or Boston or one of the big cities, I feel like um, I always take steps to keep it to a single house or to keep it to interiors because I think there are rhythms and patterns in cities that I'll never be aware of. Like even when I go to Denver, I'm like a tourist. I'm always looking up at the tall buildings and they're still pretty amazing to me. I can't yeah. imagine how people can be up there and everything. And and I think when I say patterns, like I suspect that someone who has lived in New York City their whole life can anticipate when a bodega is about to happen, you know? Um, yeah. I can't. It's just like another wonder, like, wow, there's another one. But at the same time, <laughs> it put, put me put me in the woods, and I can probably tell you the most likely place you're going to see an elk, you know, because mm. that's natural to me. But it's not natural me to me, the placement of bodegas or the hidden places gas stations are, or, you know, mm. um, or or awnings or doormen. Just there's so many things that I don't know about city life. And so for that reason, like you mentioned brush dogs, that's brush dogs was the most natural story to me in the world. I wrote it in two hours because I forgot I had a deadline and I had to do it real fast. <laughs> and and when I don't when I when I've forgotten I have to do something and I do it real fast, I'm always almost always in the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well the core the core of that story is um if I'm not mistaken, it's it's about like uh I don't know what the where the the story the, the 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 sort of it's not really an evil force but the the force mm-hmm. in that story the supernatural force in that story i'm not sure where that that comes from like if, if that's yeah. a, a story that you heard mm-hmm. uh as a kid or, or anything like that mm-hmm. um but it's it's sort of about like a, a person going into the woods and coming back changed let's yeah. say yeah. uh like almost like a changeling child but a different version of it where, where did that come yeah. from i'm just this is honestly just for um, me at this point but. i think it came from i mean that that story first appeared in a book like a tribute to laird baron who does a, he at the time yeah. he was doing a whole okay. lot of cosmic horror and because i knew it was a, it was supposed to be a like laird adjacent story i thought i better make this cosmic and cosmic horror is nearly always about um encountering something so vast you can't even see the edges of it and mm-hmm. you're you're not out to defeat it you're out to survive it and then have to live with the awareness that that exists you know mm-hmm. and and so i also don't know where the um, malignant force comes from and brush dogs i just know that they saw a ragged edge of it and it did this to them you know wow that's a 
that's dark. <laughs> it's it's a great story. I I think oh, it's on like you. Nightmare Magazine's website. So Probably, anybody yeah. anybody wants to listen or uh, I think you can also listen to it. But anyone wants to read it, that's I what think it so. is. Yeah. 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 Um. So I wanted to bring this back to slashers. I, I I'm yeah. really enjoying this very detailed writing conversation. But mm. uh, so well, let's get to the real shit. Yeah. Let's get to the real shit. Let's get to slashers. <laughs> uh, you can't, listeners. You can't see this, but Stephen is wearing a shirt that just says "Slashers," on which it. is honestly a bit on the nose. But I, like <laughs> uh, I, I just think it's a really unique choice for anybody mm-hmm. to work in. Like, uh, I, you know, and you yourself mentioned this in, in, I think, multiple texts, multiple interviews, multiple books. Mm-hmm. But that, it, you know, it had its golden age in the '80s, and then the permutations of the slasher since then have been sequels or remakes of popular franchises, or they're kind of. You know, they're they're postmodern. They're they're commentaries mm-hmm. on the genre. Scream, New Nightmare, mm-hmm. Cabin in the Woods, American Psycho, even. Uh, mm-hmm. While it is a send, it is its own kind of slasher. I'm just curious, like, what draws you to it in the modern era? Like, what what is it about it right now that feels good to you? Um, I and think good to your what, readers too, for that yeah, matter. Thank you. Um, I think what it is is. I feel a distinct unfairness in the world. I keep mm-hmm. seeing people at various podiums on, you know, on the news and they'll say something terrible or do something insulting and they just walk away and yeah. well, it's like everything bounces, washes right off their back, you know? And that to me would not happen in a slasher and a slasher like in, what is this? Is this Friday the 13th? It might be six. It's there's a, that great, that caretaker for a cemetery, who drinks all the time he's a, he's in the cemetery at night and he finishes a bottle and throws it over his shoulder which is to say he's littering and he doesn't hear it hit and he looks around he's like what's going on and sure enough if jason's there he's caught the bottle and he kills the heck out of him for littering which is probably overkill <laughs> you know i don't think he should necessarily be eviscerated for um for littering but um i think that like when the i think when the slasher first happened in the well i mean starting in maybe 74 or 78 um but the eighties were the heyday for sure. The golden yeah. age. Um, I feel like they were all kind of, um, parables tailor made for the, um, latchkey generation. All these kids coming home from school who were on their own to deal with bullies at the park or intruders in their house or whatever. Their parents were not there, but in slashers, parents are never there. Or if they're there, mm-hmm. they're useless. Like in that on Elm street. And, um, and I think, I mean, that was part of the reason we had that first golden age. And another reason was it was the height of the cold war and everybody had moved to the suburbs away from the cities. And, um, that I think the slashers reminded us that there is still terror, you know, mm-hmm. that, um, I, you, you, you look at your bedroom window and you see Jason out there in silhouette in the moonlight and he's got a machete that rises up. But I think for a lot of people, it wasn't a machete. It was a, um, it was a missile, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's what the slashers were really, they were reminding us of, they were tailor-made for the latchkey kids and for their parents, they were reminding them that total destruction is still right outside the window. Just moving 30 miles outside the city does not necessarily make you safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, nowadays, I think the, the, I don't know, the social function of the slasher is to, let us imagine a world in which things are brutally just, you know, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. slasher is a justice fantasy. And I don't think I want to live in the slasher world, but I like to imagine that sense of fairness anyways. Yeah. So that... how can you keep a slasher from feeling preachy then? How, like, you know, if the slasher yeah. is this sort of like really 
kind of like didactic form? How do you keep it from yeah. being just like a, a morality play? Um, a big part of it is the fun factor, you know, just mm -hmm. keep, keep the people giggling and screaming. But, um, but yeah, you know, coming out of the eighties, a lot of people, a lot of people's distillation of the slasher were that they were morality plays because these kids having sex, doing drugs, whatever, they were always getting chopped. But I've always subscribed to what John Carpenter says, which is, um, yeah, Michael kills people when they're in bed, but it's not because he's punishing them for having sex. What's he's, he's really just an opportunist he's like well they're naked they're distracted they're wrapped in sheets i can my job is a lot easier right now than it would be if they were ready you know and i'm yeah and and also the the kids who are inebriated in whatever fashion yeah they tend to get killed but that's the same thing as being if your mind is clouded you're you're much easier prey you know mm -hmm. it's it's not about jason michael freddie ghostface whoever punishing them it's um it's about the ease of killing them, I think. Mm. But um, yeah. that doesn't quite answer your question. How do you keep the slasher from being didactic? Um, me, and and I don't mean it in terms of like the morality of like having sex and stuff like yeah. that. I mean about the sort of like original sin yeah. that underlies the whole like cycle of justice and retribution. No, for sure. For sure. I wonder if, you know, I think the 80s slashers, the, the golden age slashers can by someone who is not reading it that closely be read as a morality play more than the post scream slashers and i think mm -hmm. the reason for that is the final girl changed in the mm -hmm. original like iterations of the slasher which was just an avalanche of, of slashers um the final girl would be the the girl who happens to have made it through various you know, like encounters with the slasher and at the end they turn around and face the slasher and often put that slasher down they find it in themselves to do that after scream where sydney the final girl is before the slasher ever starts she's dealing with issues you know mm -hmm. she's trying to get a, she's trying to figure out how to properly grieve her mother or the absence or she's trying to live with the absence of her mother anyways and after that you start seeing more like an urban legend you see it there's so many slashers where you see the final girl coming to the horror with issues already and then this horror adventure led by the slasher allows her to process through those issues and mm -hmm. so it becomes a character-driven story which um people don't think of slashers as character-driven i think they are in that sense mm -hmm. and i think if you can keep it character-driven then it it resists the abstraction which can lead to it being didactic mm -hmm. or that's my hope anyways okay i think that makes sense and i think i think the other thing is when you give the slasher their own motivation you know, yeah. like, like there's definitely yeah. this like character driven on both sides, basically, yeah. you know, yeah. like what you said yeah. about Michael Myers being this guy who just who just like or John Carpenter saying about he, he just kills people because mm. because he because those are opportunistic opportunities for him to do that. Yeah. Uh, but that's not, you know, that that's not the experience that those teenagers are having. They're having a very yeah. different one. And the reason that for one sure. of them survives is through doggedness and determination and being aware and yeah, not vigilance. and yeah. being vigilant which just so happens to be the thing that michael preys on so then you've got yeah. these two characters yeah. colliding at that point that's a that's a good way to say it yeah and it becomes like a church steeple the way you did your hands that's yeah. kind of fun. <laughs> well which I, is pretty yellow over <laughs> <laughs> well i was thinking also about you know a, a really good example of of mm -hmm. what you're describing is is nightmare on elm street where you have mm -hmm. like almost three different character driven um arcs there where you have mm -hmm. freddie who's trying to avenge himself yeah. Uh, and doing it in this like really horrifying way. You have the kids which are who are realizing their version of the story, which is that your parents can't always protect you. 
mm-hmm. even if they try and succeed in one way, they'll fail in another. But then you also have the parents' perspective, which is that they can't protect their kids, which is its whole own version of a horror movie. That's a good point. Yeah, and they're That's all just kind of second. yeah, yeah. It's like, and they're all character driven. They're all moving in the same direction, and that movie really yeah. doesn't feel didactic at all. It just feels like no, like scary. Mm-hmm. It just feels like a yeah. good horror movie. <laughs> yeah, and it, you know that that movie takes a lot of left turns too. And I think those left turns, like that, seem to be out of nowhere, but that fit the basic like the, those three narratives we're talking about. Um. I think that's another way to keep the reader like wrong footed. And when you can keep the reader wrong footed, they don't know what's going to happen next. Then I think they, they have a more difficult time extracting a morality, a lesson or totally. something, you know? Yeah. And, and, or they're able to at the very least interpret it through their own lens, which always yeah. makes it feel more, oh. the work feel more complete. Cause you have to sit For and sure. think. Yeah. If you can make the reader or the audience um, complicit in the creation of the horror, then you've got them. You know, yeah. if it's if it's happening in their head without you having to say it, then that's 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 what you want. Man. You were mentioning earlier that you know the, the slasher is sort of this genre of the suburbs, which I thought was a really interesting contrast to how you were talking about how your own psychic landscape is the landscape of of, of rural West Texas. Why yeah. do you think that that you became so drawn to this this genre of the suburbs when when that's not sort of where you feel most at home that's a good that's a good point um i mean i have lived in a lot of suburbs but but you're right i grew up where i couldn't see another light at nighttime you know we were we were mm-hmm. so remote um i think it's that it's probably just mechanical actually um like slashers need a certain density of bodies to carve through you know and, <laughs> and where i grew up it's hard to get that density mm-hmm. um like trick-or-treating for me was kids in their bulky costumes we all pile into the back of a buick like 10 of us in the back seat of a buick and we drive 16 miles to one house 10 miles to the other house you know and mm-hmm. and for a slasher i don't know if a slasher's going to put in that legwork you know <laughs> just walking dragging a heavy sledgehammer that whole time forget about it yeah it tends to work better like like kane and see no evil you know like if somebody <laughs> has has staked out this is my abandoned hotel if you come here i'm chopping you you know or jason <laughs> with crystal lake you know yeah 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 that tie themselves to a location that will become yeah. dense. It's a slash yeah. at home, yeah. you know, slash yeah, exactly. from home, work yeah, from home. Exactly. Revolution. Or, or Michael, Michael claims Halloween, Halloween night. You know? Yeah. Freddie claims dreams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. They all have like little, little hunting grounds, little territory. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, this, this idea that slashers speak to justice fantasies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that makes a lot of sense, especially when we consider that many of the main characters in your novels are native mm-hmm. uh, from different backgrounds in some of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that specifically sort of do you see like that linkage right there uh, between, you know, because like I, you're kind of the guy in slashers right now. Like mm-hmm. there aren't really people making things that are that are as popular as, as the stuff that mm. you're making right now and and putting these uh these native or indigenous characters front and center it feels very specific like you are you are saying something very specific there oh yeah well thank you thank you for noticing that and thank you for saying it um yeah i think there is i think slashers and um native concerns are, are in lockstep because mm-hmm. what we want all across america on every every reservation, every reservation, every native household, every Indian community, is um, revenge. You know, and that's what <laughs> the slasher is about: is revenge. We want to see the people who came over here and cut our hands off and enslaved us and raped us. We want to see some justice. You know, yeah. we we want things to 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 come full circle, and like that's why like all these UFO hearings, um, which aren't getting enough attention, I don't think, but um, <laughs> um, 
like the idea of aliens coming with their superior technology and their germ warfare and stuff. Um, I think those of us in Indian America were like, Hey, it's your own medicine. Take it. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about, uh, the screw fly solution, Alice yeah, Sheldon. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. The, that's yeah. one of my favorite things I've read recently. Oh, she's the best. Yeah. It's, it's but, the, the ending for that is beautiful. Isn't right. It? Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. No spoilers to anybody, but go check it yeah. out if you can. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I, I, and I think, you know, obviously in Canada, we're having, a lot of the same issues yeah. and and, and yeah. as as we should uh mm. with additional you know layers of canadianness on top of it uh <laughs> which means so many different things that i can't get into it right now but it, it, <laughs> i promise you and and uh i think i think about things like um did you ever read algernon blackwood any of his stuff yeah oh yeah i think yeah. about like the also the the willful misconstruction of of native characters and native issues mm -hmm. in other horror, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, and, and Algernon Blackwood writing about the Wendigo, but having yeah. absolutely no understanding of what that actually represents. And that specifically yeah. the Wendigo is kind of about him mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and it, and, yeah. and things like that. And it, it's, yeah. it's really amazing to watch just like, uh, you know, I, I was also reading Thomas King and he talks about yeah. how, um, you know, what does it, what does a native person look like? And the answer is basically whatever native people tell you, uh, mm -hmm. without getting, you know, there, there's a lot more detailed yeah. thing. And it's yeah. just really great to see these characters front and center of the front and center. It's like, a, it feels like a recentering to me, you know? And I mean, there's multiple recenterings. Yeah. I don't want everything in the world to pivot around us. You know, I think yeah. there should be multiple nodes, you know, totally. And, and all kinds of stuff. And, and you're right about Blackwood writing about the Wendigo. I mean, that's, that's a spooky story, no doubt. Mm -hmm. But it's, to me, the like the horror of that story draws a lot more from like Caribbean traditions than it does from mm. native traditions. Oh, you know? that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's... But I, I also think like, you know, Lovecraft, people talk about him a lot and like why he's persisted all this time. And I, I think it's as simple as his name. He's got a really cool name, you know, but I think Blackwood should have been in that conversation because he has the coolest name too. His name's fucking know? great. Have you ever uh, thought about getting a, a nom de plume? To I, try I and so wish I would have done that when sales? I was starting out because it's sales? too late now, you yeah. know, like I go back to my old, like my early or my mid nineties publications and I'm, I'm never Stephen Graham Jones. I'm always Stephen Jones, which is weird mm. to me. Like I'm that the British editor, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that dude for sure. Um, Although when we're at the same hotel, things get really confusing. <laughs> um, but um, for a long time, I had to because Stephen Jones was on the scene. By the time I came on the scene with novels, I had to use my middle name mm. to distinguish who I, who I was. And there's also a Stephen Jones who plays guitar. Was he in the band <laughs> Blackfoot? Maybe anyway. Which is oh wow! Confusing. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I could well, be wrong about that. He might be though. Um, but. Um, but because my name is so my like full name is so long and bulky um for the longest time whatever anthology i showed up in i was never on the cover because mm -hmm. um my name took up too much real estate it took up like two people's names you know <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> well alexander your your grandfather's not using his uh nom de plume anymore ah yeah he, yeah 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 he well, used uh his his uh mother's maiden name so that's nice uh, yeah, nice. That's the way nice. I think. That's the, that's yeah, the move. This is, yeah. this is Jonah Royston. Yeah. Jonah Royston. Jonah Royston. That's good. Yeah, that's good you know, I was talking, to, I was talking to George R. George R. George R. Martin once, and I'm talking to him about the how ridiculous it was that I'm have this long name, and he said his career never like really catalyzed until 
he he had been George Martin for a long time, and then he stuck those two R's in the middle, and like everybody was like, "Oh, you're you're him." This like he, everything writer. changed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we need we need more initials. I got I got I got a, a bunch to choose from. I got three middle names. I can I can do whatever wow. I want. <laughs> nice, if you, nice. If you had just been Stephen G. Jones, then you would have been a literary author. That's right. Oh, that's You'd true. Have yeah. a great sure. American novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure, for sure. Um, just uh, you were saying this other thing earlier about the sort of writing from an emotional landscape mm-hmm. that you understand and that you that you inhabited mm-hmm. the one that you grew up in. And this kind of goes with that. But, you know, I love one of the things that you're really great at is you write from the voice of characters that maybe don't have the best luck when it comes to, you know, things like upbringing and education, as we were talking about. And it's not that they're unintelligent. You know, I'm thinking of Jade specifically. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but the circumstances, you know, the, the, the vocabulary that you're going to use for these characters are going to change depending on their circumstances. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel challenged by that when you're writing? Like one, there's a scene in My Heart Is a Chainsaw where it's kind of the first scene where Jade really has a long conversation with a group of people, sort of towards mm-hmm. the middle when they confront her about that letter that she wrote. I'm trying not to mm-hmm. do spoilers. Yeah, yeah. And and what struck me about that scene more than anything else is it's like, oh my god, they all talk differently from her, mm-hmm. and like very different. And it suddenly feels like not only is she having a conversation for the first time, but also that her entire reality is being intruded on. And it's a great, it's a great turn, a great piece of writing. And I wonder, you know, do you ever feel challenged by that? Do you ever feel challenged by writing in these different perspectives? I do. Yes. And like that scene particularly, I think the reason that I've tried to, and thank you for noticing the reason that I tried to make them all to make their worlds different by making their language different, you know, or mm-hmm. their diction level anyways, um, because I've written so much stuff where people will tell me, I can't tell your characters apart by the way they oh. speak, you know, and that kind mm-hmm. of, herded me back onto the path of making sure that I was doing that. But the first time I encountered that like difficulty was with my very first novel, The Fast Red Road, because it deals a lot with, um, I say a lot, it deals somewhat with quantum mechanics and different theories circulating around that. And my character in it is um, an indentured stagehand in the porn industry, you know, and I'm not saying that those <laughs> an indentured servant in the porn industry can't have a high diction level, but um. He had also not gone to school and all this stuff. And so how is he going to talk about this? And and I guess what, what I did in that case was I kind of went back to my own high school experiences where I, I rarely went to high school. I'd always be doing something else. I, I, like one semester I had like 84 truancies and there were only 82 days in a semester. I don't know how that <laughs> happens. <You know? laughs> um, but where my mom would find me was behind a box in the garage reading physics books because that just fascinated me so much you know um and so i had to instead of um dialing his vocabulary and like thought down i just went back and changed his upbringing kind of or Mm -hmm. his past i I found that's always a like i'd rather i'd rather do the work to establish that somebody knows this stuff than to not allow them to know it, if that makes sense. Totally, know? yeah. And I think I think that's the beautiful thing about about writing, mm. is everything is mutable. Everything can be changed, yeah. and you can yeah. if something if you're trying to tell a certain kind of story, you're trying to mm-hmm. tell communicate something specific. You can just mm-hmm. tweak some knobs, you know, to yeah. uh, hit the TV because it's staticky, and then all of a sudden it's working. Like exactly. That that's also the 
biggest difficulty I've encountered with writing comic books because I'll get to issue six and I realize I should have done something in issue two, but issue two has been on the shelf for three months and I can't do it anymore. And I can't, oh, no. maybe, maybe somebody else can come in and retcon it, but uh, I can't do it at the moment. And so you're locked in with comic books. You know, when I yeah. first started writing Earth Divers, I asked my friend Daniel Krauss, whose book Wellfall is coming out here like immediately. And um, I asked him because he had just done a little limited series called the autumnal which is really good and i said how'd you do that how'd you keep it all in your head and month by month and he said oh it was easy i just wrote it all at once and i thought oh that's the way to do it just write all just write the whole arc at once yeah but of course i didn't do that i had the i had the solution <laughs> and i didn't even use it you know? <laughs> that's how it is isn't it that's it you're like the final girl in the slasher who throws the machete away yeah you, exactly. you gotta you gotta yeah. hold on to it i know you, know, you gotta so bury love... that axe when you're 11. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I so love you. You already talked about Kevin in the Woods earlier. I so love it. The my favorite moment of that movie, I think, is when um, oh, what's her name? Dana, the main yeah. character, when she has got um, I think it's a knife. Yeah, in the basement, she like gets it, and it's like this can be a weapon. But then back in the control room, they hit a button, and it makes a little shock in the hand. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, you know, and it you'll blink and you'll miss that moment, but then you understand why Lori throws a knife away after she stabs Michael in the neck with that crochet or knitting needle, whatever it yeah. is, you know? <laughs> yeah. She's not <laughs> supposed to have it. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you a question about, um, you know, I, you're technically Dr. Stephen Graham Jones, uh, mm. unless Wikipedia is wrong. Uh, mm. and, and as you were talking about, you teach, uh, I believe it's, cre I believe you do teach creative writing, but also I, I assume other courses as well. Yes. Um, and, you know, I know I, I, you know, I went to University of Toronto, I actually studied science. Uh, Alexander mm. was in philosophy, history. And, you know, mm. I knew a few of the profs who taught creative writing. And yeah. They were all just like mainly literary fiction people, yeah. authors or or taught in that style. And I'm really curious, you know, as someone, how do you approach teaching this as someone who who works in the genre space? And who mm -hmm. does great work in the genre space? And when I say literary fiction, I just want to be clear. I'm, I'm talking the style. I'm not talking about the quality. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, you know, you're totally right. Um, you know, I remember I was on faculty at a different school, probably about 2001. Mm -hmm. And we had a um, job candidate come through and he gave his big talk and it was on comic books. And I was like, jazz, I could not be more thrilled because I've been in the comic books forever. And I went to the meeting where we would all discuss, you know, this prospect and two or three professors stood up and said, um, this is an absolute no, we are not letting comic books into this program, you know, and that just hurt my soul so much. And, um, and yes, ever since writing programs came around in probably the mid seventies, there has definitely been, I guess I'd call it a prejudice against, um, commercial or genre writing, um, mm -hmm. and kind of a celebration mm -hmm. of, um, I don't want to be insulting because I love a lot of I love a lot of literary fiction, you know, but fiction that doesn't engage werewolves or spaceships or elves. Yeah. You know? uh -huh. um, Michael Chabon those... wrote this thing where he talks about how like literary fiction is great, but like mm -hmm. imagine if that was the only thing that anybody could write yeah. in. And it's oh, like man. eventually you would just get tired of it. And like that's that's no, all you... that there really needs to be said. <laughs> you definitely would. But like, you know, my heart is a chainsaw. I originally wrote the first draft of that novel in 2013 because I had read um Jeffrey Eugenides' Virgin Suicide so many times mm -hmm. that I finally started wondering, what if I were to use this really deliberate delivery method 
for a story that was actually exciting, you know, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm, don't get me wrong. I love that novel, but it would be so much more exciting if there was somebody in a mask with a um, machete, you know, I think that makes any story better. And um, so I sat down and I wrote my, the first version of Chainsaw like that, you know, so I get a lot of ideas from literary fiction. I just actually published a literary fiction story five days ago or something, you know, I still, I still mess mm. around in that. Um, the trick is, literary fiction unless you're like at george saunders level or something um doesn't bring in the same advances or royalties as commercial nope. or genre fiction at mm. all you know and which isn't to say that i'm doing genre just for the checks um, i'm doing genre or that the checks are love. great in genre <laughs> yeah and, uh, and um you know when i came to grad school um i like when i was i did i was a philosophy major philosophy English major. Mm. And um, I, I never planned to go to grad school. I was just going to go back home and farm. That was my only life plan ever was to drive a tractor. And because um, when I drive a tractor, I can listen to the radio and that makes me happy. You know, I don't, need, I don't really need more than that. <laughs> but um, and also I can wear shirts without sleeves, which I like doing. Um, <laughs> but um, get tenure, then you but, can do it anytime you want. Yeah, yeah. No, man. I, I, yeah. Um, but um, um, I my professors convinced me to put out applications for grad school. And I put in, like I reluctantly put in one to philosophy school, one to English school, just to satisfy, satisfy my professors. And then the English school got back first and said, hey, you can get free tuition if you come here. And, you know, and I, so nice. I said, well, I can, do, I can delay farming for two more years. And that happened again with my PhD. But the deal I made with myself going into these programs, because I kind of had a sense what they're going to be about, was um, you can only do it if you go in in ninja mode, which is to say, if you go in to steal all the craft <laughs> techniques you can to port them back to the Western, to science fiction, to fantasy, to horror, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and while I was doing all that work, I did get kind of um, diverted onto the track of like Thomas Pynchon, John Barth, all those like mm -hmm. those big doorstop books that are impossibly dense and don't totally make sense, but they're beautiful and wonderful. And I still love them. But um, for a while, I forgot that, my beating heart that got me here was genre, you know? And mm -hmm. so I wrote my novel, The Fast Red Road in 98. And I realized that even though it's got like um, 40 foot tall coyotes and submarines in New Mexico, all this stupid, absurd stuff, that it wasn't quite genre. It was more mm -hmm. like Donald Bartholomew kind of cartooniness, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Which I don't mean to put myself in the same plane as Donald Bartholomew, but it was, it was kind of trying to access that same story space anyways. Yeah. And so the second novel I wrote was Demon Theory, which came out in 06, but I wrote it in 99. And because um, I had to go back to where my heart was, you know, I had to go mm -hmm. back to the genre. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, you're right. There is a lot of resistance to genre writing in writing programs, which is largely because the professors, nearly to a person, don't write genre. Mm -hmm. They not even crime, usually. Um, I mean, I do know a few crime writers who are professors, but um rarely do they ever write horror science fiction fantasy and mm -hmm. um used to on my syllabi for writing workshop this was probably from 2000 to about 2008 i guess 2007 somewhere around there i would always have the very first statement be in this class your one of your submissions is going to be a genre story it can be mm -hmm. a pirate story it can be a zombie story it can be a space alien story but one of them is going to be genre because i i thought it was um, my duty to teach them to write things they could get paid by the word for so they could get some <laughs> money you know because with literary stories starting out you just get contributors copies you know and mm -hmm. that, that's nice to put on your shelf and to pass out to somebody but it doesn't buy any groceries you know mm -hmm. and i wanted my students not to starve mm -hmm. and from 2000 to 2007 every first day of class there'd be hands going up and they'd say this first thing you mean i have to write about pirates and 
And I'd say, no, it can be an alien. And they would say, well, um, <laughs> well, and they would get up and walk out. I would usually lose three or four people that first day. Wow. They would just like make a statement and walk out of class, you know, that's wild. And, and it is. And then starting about 2008 or so, um, the students, every to a person, they all came to class writing genre. So I didn't have to um, put that statement on my syllabi anymore. And to this day, this is 15, 16 years later. Um, still almost every story I get is a genre story. And that could mm -hmm. be partially because they know I'm a genre writer myself. Mm -hmm. So I could be like attracting that, that crowd more. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I, I tell them they can also write literary. I don't say you have to write genre because literary, literary can be great as well. But um, I don't have to put that statement on my syllabus anymore. There's been a big like sea change in the world. I don't know. I don't really know what's happened, but mm -hmm. something has happened to make things to me better. Do you, is there some, how do you teach differently than people who are teaching the literary fiction course? I think I expect more output than most people. Like um, my undergrads have to write a novella over the course of the semester. Wow. My grad okay. students or the intermediate has to write a novella. The advanced have to write a novel. And um, if you don't, hmm. that's like a pass fail project. If you don't write a novella or a novel, then you fail the class. And wow. I've have had people be on the verge of graduation and they have 16 family members come and they don't write the novel so they don't get to graduate. Damn. You know? Wow. <laughs> You're like the slasher of professors. Yeah. Writing. And also, also uh, Camp, I, I've, I've never trusted my ability to objectively grade a piece of art, to mm -hmm. say this is a B plus story, this is an A minus story. I don't really trust mm -hmm. myself to make that distinction. So what I do instead is I grade on um, mechanical correctness. Like, um, and I have a list of things that I walk them through in the first week so they know it as well as they can. And one of them is direct address commas. They're gonna lose five points off a hundred point, you know, possibility for every direct dress, dress comma they skip. Like, you know, hey, Bob, I'm over here. It requires two commas around Bob, <laughs> you know? and um, and so for some reason, people don't know direct address commas. And so I often end up with students who come out of their first submission with negative 20 points, you know, so they can't get better <laughs> than an 80 on their next one. And they usually don't do that, you know. So I, I really want to send people out in the world at least being mechanically correct and mm -hmm. somewhat clean, because that's the first thing an editor looks for is do they make mistakes? Is this going to is this person going to be a lot of work for me? And if you're a lot of work for them, they're less likely. They're to, not going to read it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, like when editors go through. Sorry, that's my dog. When editors <laughs> go through slush piles, they'll have fifty stories in their desk. They don't dive into that slush pile looking for gold. They dive mm -hmm. into that slush pile looking for reasons to throw this one over their shoulder. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a classic. Like with screenplays, you got to have big things happening within the first ten pages, not because oh, exactly. not because it's necessarily good for the movie, but because if you want anything to get made, uh, yeah. people have to be hooked enough to keep reading. Exactly. And that, that dynamic is only intensified with movies being released on streaming, I think, because oh, used totally. to, you'd have to walk out of the theater and argue with the manager for your money back. But nowadays you just have to hit a button, you know? Yeah, that's, that's very true. Yeah. 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 No one wants to give up that $12 easily. They want to, yeah. back in the day, they, they'd sit, they'd actually try and see if there's anything good for them yeah. there, yeah. force themselves to sit through it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we're, we're getting to, I think we're over time at this point, but I do want to ask before we, sorry. <laughs> you got to get back to writing. You got, you got 10,000 words to write today, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but I wanted to, uh, just before we go, I want to ask, you know, are there any horror or non-horror books, movies, stories, anything that's been inspiring you of late, anything you'd like to, yeah. to plug from yeah. other authors? 
Yeah, you know, I just now finished reading Brian McCauley's Curse of the Reaper, a slasher, which was really good. And okay. I think just yesterday I finished um, Josh Winning's Burn the Negative, another slasher. It was really good. Mm. Um, I'm currently reading Chuck Tingle's Camp Damascus, <laughs> which is a blast so far. That dude really knows his way through a line. And next up on the queue is Christopher Golden's The House of Last Resort, I believe. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. I don't know when it comes out, but it, I always trust Chris's stuff. He's really competent, you know? Mm -hmm. But is mm -hmm. Chuck Tingle's Camp Damascus as good as Chuck Tingle's Slammed in the Butt by My Own Butt? Yeah, I know. I've, I've seen all those covers, and I have not read those, and I probably should. You know, it's because he's good. I've, <laughs> I've yeah. read a, I've read a couple because I back when they very first started yeah. to like get some attention yeah. I read a couple and I was like oh this is just like very competent funny writing like this is just yeah. very well done uh, yeah. it, it's not as ridiculous as the title it's just I imagine as good as I imagine it's only gotten better is I guess what I would yeah. say yeah yeah no and man Camp Damascus I'm really digging it so far I'm completely uh, impressed mm -hmm. and I'm the the important thing for me is I'm learning stuff you know I love yeah. to I love mm -hmm. to see how other writers pull off tricks that I don't know how to do yet. And I can like port some version of that out and plug it into my own work. You know, what's a trick from uh, camp Damascus that you've, that you've caught on, you know, um, the, the important trick I've caught on there so far is his main character is this deeply, um, conservative religious person. And, um, he's writing about her earnestly. He's not setting her up to knock her down. You mm -hmm. know, he is, occupying a space that may not be supernatural for him to occupy and he's doing it in a really authentic way he's he's not pretending she's fake he's accepting that she's real and that's mm. something that's so important i think like mm. i see a lot of writers they'll um they'll let their own politics onto the page too much as in um they'll write about um donald trump people or something mm -hmm. and they write about them as these buffoons who don't have a clue about anything and i think that's not the right angle to take that's not mm -hmm. like that's not flexing the empathy muscles that fiction is supposed to flex for us you know mm -hmm. we should mm -hmm. we should look at people who are not ourselves and try to I mean, i'm not saying we should necessarily cross cultural lines or anything but we should try to crawl into the headspace and heart space of people who are not ourselves you yeah know? and i think the world only gets mm -hmm. better when we do that yeah it's just people struggle with that because they know that or they think that those other people are not doing that for them like yeah. they're not like yeah. if you're not going to crawl into my headspace why should crawl into yeah. yours and then that's then no one's ever crawling yeah. into anyone's headspace i know i know somebody's yeah. got to make the first move you know yeah i uh i it's something i always wanted to to point out that i i've really just like zeroed in on while we've been talking that I really like mm. is that you're always mm. talking about how you like learning, like how mm. you're, you're not complete as a writer mm. yet. And I think that that's mm. such a, such a good attitude to bring into the creative Thank process. You. Yeah. Like I always, uh, sometimes for whatever reason, I go back and, um, have to look at something I wrote 20 years ago mm -hmm. and I realized 20 years ago, I had tricks and muscles that I no longer have, you know, mm -hmm. and now I have mm. new tricks and muscles, but it, to me, it feels like, um, like writing technique, talent, craft, whatever you want to call it, is like a beaker or a cup. Mm -hmm. And and you fill it up with the like how to do this dialogue, how to do this transition. And you have all these little tricks and the, it gets full such that the next thing you learn, you pour it in, something else splashes out, you uh -huh. know? And so there's more tricks and techniques than you can hold in that beaker. And you don't get a bigger beaker, you know? And so yeah. you're, mm -hmm. you're never going to be complete. You're always going to be having to... Um, learn new stuff and relearn stuff that you used to know, you know, that's the way it is with me anyways. 
that's the Sherlock Holmes line where that's why he doesn't know that the earth revolves around the sun. Cause he's like, if I have, if I hold on to that piece of information, I, I lose something else. Oh, it doesn't help. Neat. It doesn't help him as a, as a detective. So he, he threw it away. Oh, nice. Uh, I did. Not, I never heard that. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so last question, what mm. are you working on these days? We, we, we talked mm. a little bit about it. Uh, and mm. is there anything that you'd, you know, I, th- you know what, I'm going to ask this question in a different way. Usually I just say, yeah. is there anything you want people to check out? But is there mm. like, if if you could have all of our listeners read one thing that you've written, mm-hmm. what would that be? That might be an impossible question, but I, I'm curious to hear what yeah, you say. Yeah, that is hard. Um, <laughs> man, I think I think the Only Good Indians would be a good starting place, probably. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I worry. I mean, I love Chainsaw and Reaper. Don't get me wrong, but um, it's kind of the deep end of the horror pool, you know, a mm-hmm, little bit. Mm-hmm. And Good Indians tricks you that this is going to be a shallower pool and it's not but it tricks you into thinking that <laughs> hopefully you know um but as for what i'm working on now i just now like four or five days ago submitted my last tinkering with of the angel of indian lake the third chainsaw book oh, and, oh um, very exciting and just today i've been trying to with my editor and my agent select the cover for i was a teenage slasher and <laughs> And my editor sent me a heads up. He said, hey, right as soon as the copy edits are done for Angel, we're starting on Teen Slasher. And so I'll be revising that. And the bad thing about all that is, is about two or three weeks ago, a novel happened in my head and I wrote wrote all the beats down. That never happens to me. You know, it's usually Mm -hmm. like I hear a voice and I just follow it and see where it goes. But this time it all happened in my head and I want to start writing that novel so bad. But um. I need to do these notes on teen slasher first on teenage slasher. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a lot of work. <laughs> oh yeah. And also monthly, which is really yeah, comic book. Yeah. Comic book earth divers. <laughs> the, the thing I'd never knew about comic books is that um, I might, I'll be looking at final lettering um, adjustments on issue two while I'm looking at inks on issue four while I'm looking at, pencils and layouts for issue six i've got my fingers in like every pot possible and i need more fingers because there's more pots with comic books than i have hands for and fingers <laughs> i'm getting so tired listening to this. <laughs> so much um well also, I want... I'm, doing, I'm, I'm still doing zooms with all the studios and production companies who you know are interested in this or that and mm-hmm. even with the strike going on this stuff can stuff is still happening you know yeah, people people want to talk people want to like they they want to yeah. they want to you know they know that at some point the strike will end because yeah. you know the hopefully yeah. because the the studios cave uh, and when that happens they 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 need to have their ducks in a row yeah mm-hmm. yeah and well, I, of course, it'd be nice to be one of those ducks, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's been a, a genuine pleasure. It's uh, been such a fun time talking with you. I feel so excited and energized. I want to go and write a slasher, which I've never done before. Wonderful. This is great. Yeah, I, 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 no, it's I, been I, great I, talking to y'all, man. It's, yeah. it's nice to talk to people who are enthusiastic about fiction, stories, the world, mm-hmm. horror, slashers. You know, it's just yeah. it's so exhilarating for me. Right back at you, man. Yeah. It's the best. <laughs> uh, so we'll say goodbye to all the listeners. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Um, check out everything that uh, Steve mentioned. You can rewind. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but go back. And also... Only good Indians. Uh, only good Indians, I yeah. know. But there were other, a bunch of other stuff, too. Uh-huh. And also, happy birthday to you. Yeah, is out somewhere, Alexander? <laughs> yes. Uh, Get those royalties. It's been in, it's been in theaters... 30 odd years ago and 
<laughs> you can find it on DVD in like the back bin of a of a store of the only store in your town that still has DVDs and like the part at the back where like the fluorescents are kind of flickering and there's a weird smell. You can probably find it there. Call your local AMC and threaten them until they put it on the big screen. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you.